right, well, happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter, man. It's so good to see you. It's so good to be together here at the Medina East Campus as we get to celebrate Jesus Christ rising from the dead. And I thought there'd be no better place for us to start our time than to give you a quote from Jesus Christ. And so this is what Jesus said about himself in Revelation chapter one. He said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? I think if there's anything that we could clap about, it is that, that Jesus Christ is alive, right? So, man. If there's anything we should get rowdy about, I think it's that right there, that our king is alive. And of course, this is, this claim right here, what Jesus says about himself, this is such an extraordinary claim. I mean, who can, who can say? No one in human history can say this about themselves. Jesus declares that he's alive and that he is risen and that he has defeated death and he has defeated the grave. What an extraordinary, extraordinary thing that we Christians believe. And I'll tell you, one of the things that really blows me away is uh, every time it becomes Easter time, I'm always blown away with how, um, how familiar we are with, with that statement, how familiar we are with the claim that Jesus Christ has physically, bodily, historically raised from the dead, that we can treat that with such familiarity. You know, that always blows me away how that happens. Like, I think if you were to, um, to go up to anyone on the street and you were to ask them, hey, um, t- tell me, what is it that we celebrate at Easter? If you just went up to any stranger, church or non-church, whoever, I think if you went up to them and said, hey, what, what is it that we celebrate at Easter? My guess is that everyone would probably declare in one state or another, they'd say, well, one of the things that we, we, people celebrate is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And then they'd probably go on with their day as if nothing, they didn't say anything crazy or didn't say anything that was you know, abnormal at all. And it blows me away that we can treat that claim so casually, that we can treat it in such a cavalier way, that what we're saying, that what we Christians are saying is that a, a man physically, literally, historically, bodily, raised from the dead, that he was dead and then somehow became undead. That is an extraordinary, extraordinary claim. Like, I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Just imagine I got up here this morning and I gave you an announcement. I had an announcement that I was gonna give all of us. And let's say that the announcement that I gave you was this. I said, hey guys, I hate to tell you this, but we just found out the internet has been destroyed. I just want you to imagine, let's just say that it was true. Like that was, that's an extraordinary claim, but let's just say that was true. I said, the internet has been destroyed. And it is broken beyond repair. And that means that the rest of us, for the rest of our life, we are going to have to learn to live without the internet. All right. I want you just to imagine that with me for a minute. Some of you are like, that would be awesome. Uh, But I want you just to imagine that for for just a minute, if you were to do the math on that, if, if the internet is suddenly irreparably broken, how much would that claim change your life? Like, if you think about it, man, that would, that would radically reorient the way that many of us do life. Like, a lot of us do online banking. All the banking and bank records, we literally bank online. All of that, we'd have to rethink, we'd have to reevaluate, readdress all those things. For a lot of us, our memories, the pictures that we have, all of those things are tucked away online. Those would all be gone. Um, all the databases that we have, for a lot of us, we have to rethink how we do relationships. I know for me, I don't have a single phone number memorized besides my wife's, right? And it's just like, we have to start from scratch all those things. If we had so much of our life is, is centered on and relies on and is built upon our dependence on uh, the internet. In fact, if you're on live stream right now, if the internet was broken, you wouldn't have the privilege of having such eye candy in front of you right now. <laughs> And so that would, you'd, be, you'd be denied of such a privilege as that, right? 
But, but here's, here's the point that I'm trying to make. Let's say that I got up here today and I made another announcement. And let's say the announcement that I made is I said, listen, I, I hate to tell you this, but we can actually prove beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's just, you know, we, we just understand this it to be true, that Jesus Christ died and that he didn't rise. Let's say that I got up here this morning and I just made an announcement and I said, you guys, I, I hate to tell you this, but archaeologists actually discovered, and it's, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, they, they recognize that Jesus Christ is dead. They found his body and we know it's him and he's dead. And... Um, uh, so fortunately, the, the church is still here. We still have our Bibles. We still have his teaching. We still have all the Christian subculture. We just don't have the truth and the hope of the resurrection anymore. That's, that's gone. And my question is, for those of us who follow Jesus, how much of that would change our life? How much of our life is dependent upon, relies upon, is, cha- is built upon this claim that Christ has risen from dead? Or maybe, here's the, the more important question, both for those of us who follow Jesus and for those who are investigating Jesus. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, if he truly did, just like we claim he did, how much should that, how much should that reality change your life? If Jesus Christ, physically, bodily, historically, if there was a man who claimed to be God and then died and then rose from the dead like Christians are claiming to be true, how much should that, if that is real, how much should that change our life. Here, here's the point that I'm trying to make. Christianity, unlike every other world religion, is different in this. Christianity is not foundationally built upon a teaching. It's not. Christianity is not foundationally built upon a, a vision of morality that's set forth by a religious guru. Christianity is not built upon that. Christianity is foundationally built upon a person, and it's the person of Jesus Christ who made extraordinary claims about himself and who died and we believe rose again. And if that's not true, if that's not true, if that claim isn't real, all of Christianity falls apart. All of it falls into obscurity. I actually love the way the Apostle Paul put it. The Apostle Paul is arguably the most most influential early Christian missionary of all Christian missionaries. And he said this in the book of 1 Corinthians. He said, what I received, I passed on to you of, notice this, of first importance. He says, this is foundational. Everything else is built upon this. This is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and then he rose from the dead. He says, this is the central issue that everything else in Christianity is built upon. He goes on to say this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, if it's not real, then all of our preaching is useless. All of our teaching is useless. All of everything that we're, what we're doing right now is useless. And some of you are going, hey man, I didn't say it, you said it, right? And preaching is useless, your faith is useless, you're guilty of your sins, and we of all people are to be the most pitied, is what the Apostle Paul says. In other words, he's saying everything rises and falls on this. Did Jesus Christ truly raise from the dead, validating everything he said, or didn't it? And, and that is the, the crux of the issue. And so here's the question I want to think about here today. If we truly believe this extraordinary claim, if Christians really are making this statement that there was a man who died and who rose, there was a man who physically, bodily, historically died and then rose from the dead, why is it that 2,000 years later, so many of us, myself included, continue to, to, to hold on to, to persistently hold on to this claim, this extraordinary claim, that a man rose. If this is just some Bronze Age myth, right? If this is just some kind of fairy tale fabrication of some kind, why do we still so persistently hold on to it? 
And so today what I wanna do is I wanna spend the time that we have giving you some of the evidences that we have for the resurrection. And specifically what I wanna do is I wanna give you some of the evidences that Jesus Christ himself gave on the first Easter to his disciples for the resurrection. So I wanna invite you, if you got your Bible, why don't you join me? We're gonna to go to Luke chapter 24, okay? So Luke 24 is where we're gonna be headed here today. We're gonna to look at the first, an account of the first Easter story, that very first Easter. Uh, by the way, Luke 24 is found, found on page 859 in the chairs that are underneath, uh, the Bibles that are underneath the chairs uh, there. And let me just say too, that if you uh, do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take one of those, make it a gift from us to you. You can have that and you can kind of just make that a gift. So Luke chapter 24 is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're finding this, let me just kind of remind you, for some of you who are part of the Medina East Campus, we've actually been in a series in Luke that we started all the way back at Christmas, and now we're ending here on Easter, and we've been looking at the whole life and the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've been with us in that series, you might remember that Luke himself actually has told us the reason that he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so in Luke chapter 1, Luke writes, and he tells us that the reason he writes this gospel is so that we might have certainty, that we might know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, that you might have certainty. So Luke writes in the first century, and the reason he writes is so that we can have certainty about the things that are taught about Jesus. Luke is gonna tell us that he has interviewed the eyewitnesses. He's actually interviewed eyewitnesses, that he has carefully investigated everything, and that he has put together an orderly account so that we might gain confidence in the things that have been taught about Jesus. And one of the things that Luke wants us to be certain of is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he historically, bodily rose from the dead. Now, we're gonna start reading in verse 36 here together. Uh, but before I start reading that, I wanna point out one very important point about that first Easter morning, and that's this, that on the day of the resurrection, on that first Easter, those who were the closest to Jesus were full of skepticism, doubt, fear, and unbelief. Now, this is a very, very significant point that I think is really important as we continue this conversation, that on that first resurrection morning, that in, in the face of the empty tomb, that in the face of the resurrection, that those who were closest to Jesus, his disciples and those who were closest to him, were full of skepticism, were full of doubt, were full of fear, and full of unbelief. Listen, just like you and I would be in the face of an empty tomb and the claim that a man raised from the dead, that we, we too would be full of skepticism and doubt and maybe fear and unbelief. In fact, it's interesting Luke actually tells us that the first people who went to the empty tomb, who discovered the empty tomb, was a set of women, these women disciples who went to the tomb. And do you know when they found the tomb empty, do you know what their first response was? The Bible tells us that their first response is that they were perplexed, that they wondered what had happened and they were perplexed. So, so the women's first response was not to say, oh, Jesus must have risen from the dead. That was not their first response. Just like that wouldn't be your first response. Their first response was, huh, that's really bizarre. The Bible tells us that then what happens is an angel shows up to these women and tells these women that Jesus is not there because he has risen. The women are confused. And so they run back to the disciples. And the Bible says that when they find the disciples, they tell the disciples what had happened. And you know what the disciples do? The Bible says the disciples respond, they didn't believe them. They didn't believe. And why didn't they believe? Because their words seem like nonsense. 
By the way, just like you and I would probably feel if someone came and told us that someone had risen from the dead. So Peter, the Bible tells us, Peter runs to go check it out himself. He gets to the empty tomb. When Peter gets to the empty tomb, do you know what he does? The Bible says that he too wondered what happened. He was confused about what took place. Later, and this is actually what we're gonna start looking at here today, the Bible says that Jesus Christ himself stands before his disciples in resurrected form. And do you know what their first response is when Jesus stands before them? The Bible's gonna tell us that their response is that they were startled and they were frightened and that they were troubled and that they had doubts in their mind. And then even after showing them his hands and his feet, the Bible says that the disciples still didn't believe in the resurrection, even at that point. What's the point that I'm making? Here's the point that I'm making. Those who are closest to the disciples, the eyewitnesses record their disbelief. They were full of skepticism, they were full of doubt, they were full of fear, just like you and I would be if we saw an empty tomb and we were confronted with the claim of the resurrection. Here's why this is so important. Sometimes what can happen is we can, we can look and we can say, well, of course, of course the people in the first century believed in a resurrection. Because, you know, they were, they, back then, they were so unsophisticated. And back then, they were so gullible. And back then, you know, first century people had a worldview that just accepted all kinds of supernatural things that, you know, we, that, but we're modern people now, right? We're, we're, we're so much more advanced. We're so much more sophisticated. And so, of course, they believed in the resurrection. But we, as modern people, could never accept something like that. By the way, can I just tell you that what I just described to you, there's actually a phrase that they use to describe that. I don't know if you guys ever heard this. It's called chronological snobbery. Have you ever heard that before? I love that term, chronological snobbery. The whole idea is, oh, um, back then, oh, back then, they were so unsophisticated. They were so, they were so ignorant. But now, now we know. Now we've got it together. Now we've got it figured out. And the point I'm trying to make is, in the same way that you and I do not have a category for the resurrection of the dead, they also did not have a category for a person raising from the dead. They, they were full of skepticism and doubt. And by the way, quick side note on chronological snobbery. Are we really that much more sophisticated? I mean, think about it for a minute. Yes, we're advanced in some ways. We're advanced medically, I guess. Uh, we're advanced technologically, for sure. And yeah, we have facial recognition technology on our iPhones, with which we also make cat memes and send each other poop emojis. Are we really that much more sophisticated? Really, right? So, so again, the point is, we don't have a category for a person, really. neither did they. They didn't have a category like that either. In fact, I want you to notice, starting off in verse 36, when Jesus shows up to the disciples, notice their response. So the Bible's gonna say, when they were still talking about this, what were they talking about? All the events of the morning, the Bible says that Jesus Christ himself, Jesus in the flesh and blood, stood there among them, and he said, and I love this, by the way, notice the first recorded words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said to them, peace be with you. And I just gotta tell you, I think that's so awesome. I love that the first words we have on record that Jesus spoke to his disciples, the same disciples who abandoned him, the same disciples who left him in his hour of need, the same disciples who, who denied him, his first words when he saw them was not, you guys are in big trouble, right? His first words were not, you guys better run. His first words were peace. Peace be with you, I love that. And so how did they respond? Jesus Christ himself is standing there in front of them. How did they respond? The Bible says their response was that they were startled and they were frightened. I can't emphasize this enough. 
when, when the disciples encountered the resurrected Jesus, even though Jesus told them that he was gonna raise from the dead, their first response was that they were scared. They, they weren't like, Jesus, we knew you could do it. That wasn't their response. Their response was that they were terrified. And look at this. They thought that he was a ghost. It's so interesting to me that it was more logical for the disciples to conclude that Jesus was a ghost than it was that he had risen from the dead, even though he told them repeatedly that he was going to raise from the dead. They had no category for this. And so what does Jesus do when he sees that they're startled and they're frightened? Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you have these doubts that rise in your mind? So Jesus recognizes they're troubled and they have doubts and they're skeptical. But look what Jesus does in light of their skepticism. The Bible says, Jesus looked at him, he said, look at my hands and look at my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said all this, he showed them his hands and he showed them at his feet. And then look what the Bible says. It says, and, he, and while they still did not believe it, they still did not believe it. And the reason they didn't believe it now was because of joy and amazement. So now they probably just thought they were dreaming. They're like, this is too good to be true. Someone's got to pinch us. Jesus then asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And he gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now, I, this is so interesting to me. This little detail right here that Jesus ate a piece of broiled fish on the morning of his resurrection, on the day of his resurrection, is honestly, it is one of the weirdest things to me. It's so weird, I can't help but think, you guys ever hear uh, Mark Twain famously said, the truth is stranger than fiction. And you know, sometimes when I read this, I'm like, man, that has to be true because that's just so weird that one of the first things Jesus did in his resurrected body was he ate a piece of fish in front of his disciples. That's so bizarre to me. And so what's Jesus doing here? The disciples are skeptical and they're doubting and they're full of fear. And Jesus invites them to investigate. He says, check it out. Touch my hands, touch my feet. And when they still don't believe, he says, here, give me some fish. Let me show you. Let me show you what, I can, what I'm capable of doing in my body. What's happening here? Here's what's happening. Over and over again, Jesus is trying to provide for his disciples physical evidence. He's trying to show them, listen, this is not just a spiritual resurrection. This is not just an allegory. This is not just something that you're hallucinating and seeing. This is real. This is, a, in other words, this is a physical, literal, historical resurrection. And can I tell you that one of the reasons that Christians 2,000 years later still hold on to the claim that Jesus Christ literally raised from the dead, one of the reasons is, it's because I believe that Jesus has continued to allow us to have incredible, incredible uh, historical evidence for the resurrection. Now, some of you maybe have looked into this before, but did you know that anyone who has seriously studied the historicity of the claim of Jesus' resurrection, who, anyone who's ever seriously studied that always comes back and they talk about how, my goodness, there is so much incredible amount of evidence that validates the claim that Jesus Christ has historically risen from the dead. Both critical and, and those who would be uh, proponents of faith, scholars on either side, they would say, whenever you study the historicity of the resurrection, there's incredible evidence, incredible evidence that we have that points to the, the validity of the claim of the Christian message that Jesus has risen from the dead. In fact, I thought that what I would just do is I would just show you uh, Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf is actually a Harvard law professor. This is what he said after studying the historical claims of the resurrection. 
is that according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. It's a pretty profound claim. What's interesting is those who have seriously investigated the historicity of the resurrection will point out that there are no less than five data points five data points that are accepted as firmly established historical facts that even critical scholars who don't believe in the physical resurrection would agree on. Five facts, and let me tell you what they are, at least five. Number one is this, it is a historical fact, it is accepted as historically factual that Jesus Christ was crucified, that Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross. Number two, it is a historical fact that Jesus was placed in that tomb and that on the morning of Easter, it was found empty. That is a historical fact. Number three is this, is there were appearances. There were post-death appearances. People claimed to see Jesus after he died. That is considered a historical fact. Number four is that the disciples underwent a sudden and, and, and rapid transformation. And then number five, it would be this, that the impact of Jesus on time and on history. In other words, Christianity arose and it expanded suddenly and quickly in the first century all the way until today. And so all historians who look into the credibility of the claim of the resurrection have to account for these five facts. And so they have to figure out what is the best theory that synthesizes these five historical realities that we know. And of course, if you guys have ever looked into this, you know there's a lot of different theories that have been posed. I'll just give you a couple. Let's give you a couple. Here's one. The earliest claim that people have tried to, to explain this away with is something that's called the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory suggests that Christ's disciples simply stole Jesus's body and that they fabricated the resurrection story. So basically the idea is that the disciples were the ones who stole the body and then they made up the whole thing. The whole thing is a hoax. And I just gotta tell you that if, if you told me that someone raised from the dead um, and that there was, you know, that he claimed to be God and he raised from the dead, my first inclination would probably be to think that this is what happened. That's what I would think. I think it's gotta be a conspiracy. There's no way that could happen. It's probably a hoax. That's what I would think. And that's what many people think. And that makes a lot of sense until you try to square it with the evidence. See, because when you do that, you see that there's some problems. So here's the first problem. The first problem is the appearances, the appearances. So we actually know that not only do the gospels tell us that Jesus appeared to his disciples, but there are other first century documents that we have, even some that are extra biblical documents that actually confirm to us that there are people who claim to see Jesus alive 40 days after his death. I wanna show you one place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This was written in the first century, about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. The apostle Paul says, Jesus appeared to no more than 500 people at the same time. Notice what he says next, most of whom are still alive. In other words, what's he saying here? Fact check me. You can, you can talk to them, they're alive. You can still talk to them about this experience. He says, then he appeared to James, which I wish we had time to get in James. James was Jesus' skeptical little brother who did not believe that he was the Messiah, who after a resurrection appearance went on to be one of, the, one of the prominent leaders in the early church and ended up being martyred for his faith and belief that Jesus was the son of God. And then you have the 12 apostles, and then he says, and you also appealed, appeared to me. I gotta tell you too, one of the things about these appearances is these appearances are some of the most well-attested pieces of evidence of the five. Even critical scholars who reject the resurrection will say that these appearances cannot be denied. Uh, I'll show you one. 
So this actually comes from Gerd Ludemann. Gerd Ludemann is a German uh, historian and scholar, and he is one who rejects a physical resurrection. And here's what he says. He says, the only thing that we can certainly say to be historical is that there were resurrection appearances in Galilee and Jerusalem soon after Jesus' death. These appearances can't be denied. Or E.P. Sanders, who again is a critical scholar who rejects the resurrection, says that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to those experiences, I don't know. So, so basically, again, these are critical scholars who are saying, look, we have done the research on this, and this is the conclusion that we've come to. The appearances are a fact. They're a fact. And so I think when you think about, when you think about this theory, when you think about the theory of the stolen body, the appearances are an issue. The other issue is the transformed disciples. Here's the truth, okay? If the resurrection was a hoax, if the disciples just made it up, if that was the case, it is very, very hard to accept that these disciples, that these same disciples who cowered in fear and hid on the night of his arrest would suddenly be so emboldened that they would eventually give their life for a lie. Can I tell you something we know? We know that of the 12 disciples, history tells us that of the 12 disciples, which by the way, here's their pictures. I pulled them out of their yearbook. So these are their yearbook photos. I, that's not true. By the way, I just got to mention this. I love Philip, that picture right there. It's like classic senior picture pose. So, but here's what we know. We know that of the 12 disciples, that 10 of them, 10 of them, their lives ended in martyrdom. They gave their life for their belief and their faith in Jesus Christ. The only two that we know that didn't, Judas, we know betrayed Jesus and he hanged himself. John, we're not sure. We know that he ended his life on the island of Patmos. He was exiled because of his belief and his faith in Jesus Christ. They all underwent persecution and hardship because, of, listen, if they were propagating a lie, what was in it for them? Martyrdom, death, they all took it to the grave. Interestingly, Chuck Colson, some of you might know Chuck Colson, he actually was an advisor to Richard Nixon and he was involved in the Watergate scandal. And after he was arrested, he was put in jail, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ while he was in prison. And he actually said something I thought was really interesting. Here's what Chuck Colson said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate's what proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, was tortured, was stoned, and was put into prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me the 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years. That's absolutely impossible. And so because of this, because of these two problems, the, the uh, stolen body theory has been outright rejected. It's not accepted by any, anyone in, uh, who, who, who studies the historical credibility of the resurrection. I'll give you one more, just one more. There's several of these, but I'll give you one more. Another one is something called the swoon theory. The swoon theory actually uh, was first proposed in 1828. And basically, the swoon theory claimed that Jesus didn't actually die. Rather, he merely fainted, which is what swoon means, on the cross from pain, shock, and loss of blood. I sometimes call this one the Monty Python theory. You guys remember that movie? I'm not dead yet. It's that whole idea, right? <laughs> that basically, he wasn't dead. He was, they, they were mistaken. And they took his body, and they put it in the tomb, and then somehow the cold, damp air resuscitated Jesus and he came back to life and came back to his senses and somehow miraculously moved the stone and then convinced everyone that he was the risen son of God. Now, I gotta tell you, this theory to me seems laughable 
this, this theory to me seems improbable, but I'll admit to you, it does sound more reasonable than a person raising from the dead, right? At least to me it does, until you try to square it with the evidence. And so one of the big problems with the swoon theory when you dig into it is when you actually study what was involved in the crucifixion. Some of you have actually done some research on what was involved in a Roman crucifixion. And if you had, it is gruesome. It is absolutely gruesome. The Romans were experts at executing people. Uh, history actually tells us that during Jesus' time, the Romans would have crucified up to 2,000 people every year. And they were so efficient at it that there is no record that we have of a person who underwent a full crucifixion who survived, not one. And then on top of that, we also know that before Jesus went to the cross, he was scourged with a whip. He was sent to the cross and he was, he was pierced in the side with a spear. Interestingly, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association just several years ago actually took the historical information that we had and they ran it through what they know uh, medically and scientifically. And here's what they concluded. They said this, they said, Jesus's death resulted primarily from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Jesus's death was ensured by the thrust of a soldier's spear into his side. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when he was taken from the cross. So while he was taken from the cross, we're saying he was dead. But then on top of that, he was also placed into a tomb without food, without water, and without medical attention for three days. The point is this, is that the swoon theory has been outright rejected. Now, we could talk about several. Like I said, there's a lot of these theories. We could talk about the doppelganger theory. That's one that's out there. We could talk about the hallucination theory, that people just hallucinated the whole thing. We could talk about the displaced body theory. These are all theories that have been posed, but the point is none of these theories actually work with the evidence, and all of these have been rejected universally by all of scholarship. Why? The reason is because the simple point is there is no naturalistic explanation to fully account for these five evidences. To this day, there is no naturalistic explanation that anyone can provide except one explanation that works with all points of evidence. And that is that maybe Jesus actually rose from the dead. I love uh, what one scholar said, Peter uh, Slezik, he said this, for a God who is able to create the entire universe, the odd resurrection would be child's play. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. If you have a category in your mind for a God who can create the universe, then isn't it reasonable to think that there is a God who can raise his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead? And so I think, I think what we see is that Jesus gives to his first disciples he gives them physical evidence. And I think he actually provides for disciples today. He provides ample evidence for us to see that there is historical validity to the claim that we Christians are making. But not only does Jesus give his first disciples, notice, not only does he give them, uh, not only does he give them physical evidence, he also goes on to give them prophetic evidence. So here's the disciples. They're doubting. They're skeptical. They're, they're disbelieving the resurrection. Jesus says, feel me, touch me, physically, historically, it's real. But he doesn't stop there. He also gives them prophetic evidence. So look what he says next in verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything has to be, now notice this word, everything has to be fulfilled. What was written about me, written about me, where was, where was this predicted and written about you? Look what he says, in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms. What's that talking about? Well, some of you know that, that these, the, the, 
the, the, the books of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms is a way of talking about the Jewish Bible or what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus says, everything in the Old Testament was written about me. And then he says he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Do you notice what Jesus is doing here? In, in the midst of their doubt, in the midst of their skepticism, he gives them physical evidence. He says, this is historically true. But then he also gives them prophetic evidence. He says, there's evidence from the past. You can go and read in, in, in prophets and in the books of Moses and things that were written centuries before Jesus even came on the scene that prophesy with an amazing amount of specificity the events of the cross and the events of the resurrection. Now, this is a point that, man, I just wish we had a whole other sermon to get into, but for time's sake, we can't. But when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at places like Psalm 22, when you look at places like all throughout the book of Isaiah, when you look at the writings of Moses and they predict with unbelievable amount of certainty centuries before the events of what happened in Jesus's life, Jesus says, yes, there is, there, is, there is physical, historical evidence. There is also evidence from the past that predicts, prophetic evidence that predicts my coming. But then the third one is this. Jesus also offers future evidence to his disciples. He gives physical evidence, evidence right now. He gives prophetic evidence, evidence from the past. And then he goes on to give future evidence. And I think that this last one is actually less for them in the first century and I actually think it's more for us now in the 21st century, because look what Jesus says. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah is gonna suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and then repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is amazing. Will be preached, now notice this, in his name, in the name of Jesus, to who? Do you see this? To all nations, to all nations, starting, beginning, right here in Jerusalem. So Jesus makes a pretty bold statement here. Think about this. This is the first century. Jesus shows up to this room full of disciples. How many are in this room right now? I don't know, not a lot. We know the 11 are in the room. We know that the women disciples were in the room. There's a couple of other disciples who are on the road to Emmaus who are in the room. And Jesus tells this group of, I don't know, 15, 20 people. He says, listen, here's the evidence. Feel me, touch me. He says, all of the prophets have predicted this. And then he says, and I, I need to tell you that it's gonna start in this room, but this message is going to be, be proclaimed to all nations, to all nations. Can I tell you what I think one of the greatest pieces of evidence for the resurrection is? One of the greatest pieces of evidence, I believe, is you and me in this room right now. What Jesus said then is fulfilled here. You guys, do you ever think about this? We're in Medina, Ohio. Medina, Ohio. Some of you are like, uh, I, I know that, right? But think about that. We are 2,000 years and 6,000 miles removed from when Jesus made this statement. We could get in a plane right now for $880 and fly for 15 hours and 15 minutes to get back to that spot. But here's the point. When Jesus declared those words to those first disciples in that room in Jerusalem, they didn't even know what all nations meant. I guarantee they didn't know about Medina, Ohio. I don't even think they knew about America. And yet Jesus' words are ringing true even here today. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. I think when you look at the claims of Jesus, when you look at the claims of the Apostle Paul, when you look at all the eyewitnesses, I think it's as if they're all saying this. I think they're saying, listen, you can call us liars or you can believe what we're saying is true, but here's the one option you must not and you cannot do. 
You cannot tame this extraordinary claim that we are making that Jesus Christ has physically, bodily, historically raised from the dead. Because to tame that message, to tame that claim, is to miss the point entirely. If Jesus didn't rise, then they would say that everything we're doing is useless, is powerless, is hopeless, and is foolish. And that's why they were sad, and that's why they were despondent, and that's why they doubted, and that's why they were fearful. But I want you to notice how it ends. So the Bible says that Jesus looked at them and he said, you're gonna be my witnesses of these things. I'm gonna send you what my father has promised. By the way, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And then the Bible says, when he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. And now look, watch this. They worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple and they praised God. Do you notice how this story started? Fear, skepticism, doubt, troubled. And how does it end? Joy, worship, praise. And why is that? For the same reason that those of us in this room can also celebrate and praise and worship. Why? Because Jesus Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And listen, if he's risen from the dead, that means some stuff. That means some stuff. The implications are huge. If Jesus is raised, because Jesus is raised, that means this. That means Jesus is right. He's right. And some of you are like, about what? About everything. If he's raised, everything he said about himself all the extraordinary claims. Everything he said about life, everything he said about death, everything he said about heaven, everything he said about hell, everything he said about money, everything he said about marriage, everything he said about sexuality, everything that he said about coming back is real. He's right. Here's what it means. Because he's raised, it means that death is defeated. It means that our great enemy has been defeated. Listen, one of the greatest questions that humans have asked throughout all of history is, is this life all there is or is there more? It has perplexed and bewildered humanity, but the resurrection gives a profound and clear answer to that question. You know, I love uh, one book that was written is called um, Life After Death. And in this book, I think the author puts it so well. He says, death is the issue that makes every other issue trivial, if you have doubts about its significance, go to a hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who's recently lost a child. You'll discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. Some of you know this, you've experienced this. He goes on, he says, death is a great wrecking ball. It destroys everything, everything that we've done, everything we're doing now. All of our plans for the future are completely and irrevocably destroyed when we die. At bottom, we all already know this. Only teenagers live in that state of temporary insanity when they believe themselves immune from death. I'm sorry, teenagers, that's just true. That's true. But as we get older, especially when we move beyond the midpoint of life, starting our way on the downhill slope, we begin to acknowledge our mortality. Listen, and the resurrection gives us a profound answer to that thing that we all fear, that thing that we all know, the great wrecking ball of death. The resurrection tells us there's more to this life than just this life, which means there's more to live for than just this life. There's something more. 
The resurrection means what? It means that Jesus is right, death is defeated. It means that the forgiveness of sins is available. Did you guys see what Jesus said? Jesus said this message, what message? The repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. The forgiveness of sins is possible. That the guilt and the shame that we all carry with us, that we don't know what to do with. There's a place that you can take that, that you can be forgiven and you can be healed. It's in Jesus. And that's real. The forgiveness of sins is available and the hope of the resurrection is real. You guys, if, because Jesus rose from the dead, that means that not just did he rise, but it also means that if we place our hope and our faith in him, that we too will rise like he did. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that we will experience a bodily resurrection in the same way that he has. And you guys, this brings tremendous hope, tremendous hope to those of us who are in pain and who are suffering. I love um, Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her story. She's a famous Christian author. And when she was 18 years old, she actually got into a diving accident and she, she broke her neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. And so she's lived her entire life in a wheelchair. And she actually recounts a story where after the event had taken place, not too long after, she was at a Christian conference. And at the end of the conference, the, the pastor got up and asked everyone to join him on their knees to kneel and to pray. And she talks about how in that moment, it occurred to her for the first time that she would never kneel and pray in her lifetime. And she just broke down in tears, realizing that she couldn't do that. And she actually uh, recounts the story and she explains how in that moment that the hope of the resurrection became very, very real to her. And she says, she said, I looked forward to that day, the day of the resurrection, the day of the wedding supper of the lamb. And here's what she said. She said this, she said, the first thing that I plan to do on resurrection, the first, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. On the day I receive my new body, I'm gonna tell my Lord, I'm sure my Lord will be delighted to watch me stretch glorified muscles and to dance on tiptoe, but there's something I plan to do that might please him more. I'll kneel. To not move is gonna be my demonstration of heartfelt thanks for the grace that he gave those many years when my legs and my hands were paralyzed. It'll be my sacrifice of praise. And how beautiful. And you guys, that's, that's real, that's real. Because he rose, that's, that's a real hope. That's a reality. That all, all that we experience because of the curse that sin brings to this world, the pain and the brokenness, it's, it'll be reversed. That's real. And what it means more than anything is it means he's alive. Jesus is alive. Like, like right now, he's alive. He's alive. You see, I think that the hope of the resurrection isn't just something that gives us hope for later. I think it's something that should radically transform our life right now, right now. I asked you earlier, if the internet was broken, would that change your life? And we all are like, yes, dramatically. For those of us who follow Jesus, if I asked you, 
if I said, hey, if Jesus wasn't raised, would that change your life? I said, can I just tell you, I think if the answer is not that much, there's something very wrong with that. I think it means that we must, we must be misunderstanding something. The resurrection should radically reorient, radically reorient our entire life, the way that we the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our resources, the way that we engage in relationships, the agendas that we are pushing, the things that we care the most about, all of that has to be reworked because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Philip Yancey said it the best. This is my favorite resurrection quote. In many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. This is my favorite line right here. Moreover, Easter means he must be loose out there somewhere. And I love that. And he is, because he's alive. And he's on the move. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. And, and as they do, um, I wanna end our time with just one final question. It's the question that we started with. And it's simply this right here. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, how should your life change? How should that change your life? This is a question for those of us who follow Jesus. This is also a question for those who are investigating Jesus. And let me just say, if you're a person who's investigating Christ, I, I understand that one sermon is not gonna fully satisfy all of your questions and it's not going to may, maybe do, you know, it's not gonna, gonna finally put to rest all of the things that you're thinking through. And I, I don't expect it to. But can I actually just give you maybe a couple of invitations and maybe even if you'd let me, two challenges, two challenges. If you're a person who's sincerely investigating, and I do wanna tell you this too, we say this all the time. If you're a person who's investigating your faith, we count it an honor, an absolute honor that you would let us be part of that investigation. But here's my two challenges. The first one is this. I challenge you and I wanna invite you. As we worship and as we sing, would you pray? Would you pray? Not out loud, but just to God. Would you talk to God? And some of you are like, I don't, I don't pray. I've never really, I've never really have prayed. I don't, I don't even know if I believe in the whole God thing. But I just challenge you. Can I challenge you to pray? And you might be saying, well, what, what would I pray? I want to challenge you to pray three things. Here's the first one. Would you ask God? Would you say, God, if you're real, show me? And then number two, would you pray this? Jesus, if you're alive, would you meet me? ask him. And then number three, would you pray, God, would you lead me? Would you show me what I need to do next? I, I, I want to invite you to pray that. What could you lose? Here's my second challenge to you. If you're a person investigating, I want to challenge you, very, very practical. I want to challenge you in your investigation to come back. So next week, we're starting a four-week series. We talked about it called Broken. And I just think, just don't, don't let this be a that the last time you hear about the things of Jesus for another year, lean into that investigation, come back. I triple dog dare you to do it. If you come, Jordan will buy you dinner every night. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, Jordan. <laughs> and for those of us who follow Jesus, my encouragement to us is that we'd ask the same question and that we talk to God. And that we would ask him, that we'd ask him to help us reorient our life around the resurrection. And for those of us who follow him, I want to encourage us to sing and to celebrate in praise because he, he is alive. Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you that you're alive. You're alive. And so I pray that you would meet us here. Jesus, I pray that you would show us that you're real. And God, I pray, I pray that you would lead us to what we need to do and how we need to live. This incredible truth should reorient and rework every aspect of who we are. Help us to reorient our life around this pivotal truth that you are alive. What that means for the world, what that means for our hope, what that means about you and about everything you said. And so, Father, we want to worship you and want to praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name.